Good morning, Purpose Church. Good to be with you. Uh, if you'll allow me, I'm having a little problem with my lower back, which I broke uh, during the service, and it, it's come back on me a little bit, so I'm having a little problem. I'm going to sit down. Is that okay? Do you have your permission? It'll be a little easier for me. And I know we've already prayed a lot, but you can't pray too much. And I'd like to pray because I need it. I'm just a cop. I'm not a minister. Remember that. I need a lot of help. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to be here this morning with these folks. Many are going to be new friends, and we thank you for that. And Lord, uh, just like I've said, I, I admit before my friends here that I need you. I ask that you would please give me strength and the ability to, to think right and get through what you want to say this morning to all of us, including me. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, uh, if you're going to follow in the word of God, you might want to turn to Exodus 3 and 4, and uh, we'll refer to those, and the, the message will be kind of based on that, and it will also be indicated in the uh, um, overheads that you see in what some people call PowerPoint, but I understand this is not PowerPoint. It's a, it's a more advanced system here that you have in your church, and I'm glad for that. Uh, I'd like you to look at a chart that I prepared about what's happening uh, as far as Christianity is concerned. You know, uh, it, it's been largely in the past a Western religion in many ways. In the 1700s, 80%, as you can see on that chart, see that the blue part of that first graph is uh, the number of people who are Christians from the Western world, like England and America. And as you can see, there's about 80%. In 1900s, that dropped to 55%. In the 40s, uh, I'm sorry, in, in the year 2000, it's going to drop to 40%. And by the year 2025, there will only be 30% of people who are Christians will be in the West. Most of them will be in other countries like South America and Africa, Asia, India, China, places like that. And that's a good thing for them. It's kind of bad for us. <laughs> we need to keep it going here. Uh, and we're going to look at a little bit of what it says about that in the Bible. But first of all, I want you to look at some graphs I've made of the world. And the first one shows Christianity starting in the Middle East there in, in Jerusalem. You can see the action was right there with that little red dot. And by the time the 1700s came along, it had pretty much died off in, the, in, the, uh, in Israel. And it spread to Europe. You see the large one there. And then also Canada and America. And then... By the 1900s, you can see most of the action went to uh, uh, America, Canada, and other places in the world, and Europe was dying, getting cold, and by the year 2000, it pretty much died in Europe. As you can see, it green is dead, and the, the red spots are where Christianity is the most active today. And like I say, that's great for the rest of the world, but wow, we, we need some help here. What, what does the future hold? There's a big question mark over that. Now... Let's take a look at our mission. What is our mission? And before we get into that in depth, uh, just let me give you a story about getting a mission. I was on the department just a, a few weeks out of the academy, and I was walking a footbeat in L.A. And I wanted to work one of those new radio cars. They, they were new then. This was 1954. Anybody alive in 1954? <laughs> Probably most of you were born after the 50s, you know. I was a cop in 1954 on the streets. And they put me walking a footbeat downtown L.A. on Skid Row. And I said, I want to work one of those radio cars. Why do you have me on a footbeat? They said, because you're over six foot. 
I said, what does that have to do with it? Well, as a footbeat officer, you don't have a radio. Now they have little personal radios. In 54, there were just a few walkie-talkie war surplus things, those great big things you had to carry a backpack, you know, and we weren't going to do that. So beat officers did not have a radio. They said, if you get in trouble out there, you're on your own, man, so we want big guys. <laughs> I, Whoa, you know. Well, guess what? After about the second or third week, I'm working with this guy. His first name was Sid. He called in sick. And instead of giving me someone else to work with, they said, Vernon, you're on your own today. I mean, I'm only three or four weeks out of the academy, and I'm working by myself. That's never done today. But back then, it was. And then to add even more concern to me, the sergeant said, Vernon, I got a mission for you. See me in the uh, watch commander's office after roll call. You're working by yourself today. I said, all right, sir. So I went in there and he said, "Uh, look, we're looking for this guy that escaped from San Quentin State Prison. He's armed, considered dangerous, vowed he won't be taken alive, and we think he's on your beat. (laughs) I'll have to tell you, I was was nervous. He said, go over to R&I, pick up the guy's mug, and you'll know who you're looking for. Well, I didn't want to walk down the street holding up this picture to everybody. So I took off my hat and I slipped it in where the manufacturer's name is there, behind the plastic so I could still see the picture. I put my hat back on. As I'd pass people that were even vaguely similar, I'd take my hat and take a quick look. They thought I was the most friendly cop they'd ever seen. Good morning, sir. Good morning. No, that's not him. Well, guess what? I made maybe three or four arrests for minor, you know, drunken disorderly, things like that. By the end of the day... I had three bars on my beat. I walked in one of the bars, Burt's Bar, I'll never forget the name of it, and there sits the guy. I mean, I'd been looking at this all day. I knew it was him. Man, I started getting scared. And to be honest with you, a cowardly thought entered my mind. No one knows you've seen this guy. You could just go home (laughs) and finish your watch and not do anything. Well, I thought, no, I can't do that. They're paying me to be a cop. I guess I have to do something. So I mustered up all the courage I could, and to be honest with you, I was quite frightened by myself and everything, you know, and this guy's going to shoot it out. And Fortunately, it was a cheap bar. It didn't have a mirror, so he didn't see me as I came up behind him. But I'd seen his profile enough to know this was him. And I came, and I was scared to death, and I did something very strange. I walked right up behind him. I took off my hat, held it around in front of his face, said, Sir, is that you? I really did that. He was so amazed by this approach. He said, yep, sure is. (laughs) I put my hat back on and I pulled out my gun and I had what they call a clamshell holster. It makes a noise when you press this button, it flaps open, you know, and he'd been around cops and he knew what that sound was. And so, yeah, it sure is. You know, there goes the noise. And he turned and I said, wait a minute, wait a minute, officer. And I'm I'm holding out my gun. Problem was I was having trouble keeping it still. He said, what do you want me to do? And I said, I want to put these things on you. I pull out my handcuffs. I was so nervous I couldn't remember what they were called. He said, well, well, don't shoot. I'll help you. He actually got off the bar stool, put his hands behind his back, helped me put on the handcuffs. Then I took the gun that he had in his belt out. You're supposed to do that first, by the way. Called for a radio car, got to the station, took him into the watch commander. I said, I got him, Sarge. Mission completed, you know. And then I went in to put my gun in the locker so I could take the guy into the jail. And when I came back, the the sergeant is talking to this guy and he said, you know, you were armed, considered dangerous, said you wouldn't be taken alive. And 
the officer just told me you helped him put on the handcuffs. Is that right? He said, Sarge, that was not fair. Sending that young kid rookie after me. He said, I looked at him, all the color drained from his face, the gun shaken. He said, I knew one move and at certain death. <laughs> oh, man. I'll never forget that. That was my first felony arrest. And it went down just like I explained it. I mean, it sounds like some kind of a Keystone Cops, you know, but it's true. It really happened. Well, guess what? We have been given a mission. I was given a mission that day. Fortunately, I was able to accomplish it without getting killed. Well, we've been given a mission. I want you to see what that mission is. All followers of Jesus are called. That's a command. That's not a suggestion. The Bible actually says in Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. It doesn't say think about it, or maybe you should. It says go. And he says, Jesus' own words, you shall be my witnesses. Not you better think about it. You shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria. Main point here, quit waiting for a call. I keep on hearing people say, you know, you tell us to go out and tell people about Jesus. I haven't been called to do that. That's not my gift. Guess what? The Bible says it's all of our calling. You are called. Now, the way you do it is, well, there's a lot of differences there. Some people are called, like me, to come up and sit and and talk to people before a big audience, and and I, I feel fairly comfortable doing that. Some don't. That's okay. You're good at one-on-one. Or you're good at just maybe leading a small group. Or you're good at just answering questions to a neighbor or something like that. Completing the mission, it says, first of all, Jerusalem, that means the people closest to you, like your real close friends, your family members. Then he says, Judea and Samaria, people that are near but different. Let me tell you something. Samaria, that was a kind of a racial thing. The Jews didn't like the Samaritans. They were half Jew and they had married into the Palestinians and, and the, the Jews didn't like that at that time. It was a kind of a racial thing. They, they didn't talk to them. They didn't like to get on the same side of the street. That's why they passed on the other side of the street. The, the, the guy who was assaulted by the robbers and all that. And finally it was a Samaritan who actually did that. Remember that? The good Samaritan story that Jesus told. So this, this was kind of a racial thing. He says, people that are different, you're to go to them too. You're to love them too. And then the ends of the earth, everybody else. So we're told to go to our closest friends, our family friends, our neighbors, people that are close to us but different. And really the end of the world. And guess what? Today that's possible to do. I have been to probably over, over 20 countries. My organization has been to 72 countries we just completed where we take leadership principles. And then when we finish the leadership principles, we invite them to stay over for an optional module, we call it, where we tell them about the gospel and we tell them about Jesus. Because ultimately, if, if a country is going to get away from corruption, and that's why they have us come, by the way, they're trying to stop the corruption that has plagued the police in many countries. We think they need more than just a social system to change that practice of corruption. They need some help from God. And so we say, you know, we'd like to explain to you how to have a relationship with God, but we don't want to force you into that. So this is going to be optional. We're going to have about 20 or 30 minutes where we do this, uh, but we'd like to 
we're at the end of our seminar now, so we're going to dismiss you out of this room. You've got your certificates of completion and all that. And if you want to hear this, you come back in after five minutes. But everybody has to leave the room, even if you want to stay, because we don't want anyone to feel awkward. So they all leave. And then guess what? 80 to 90% come back in. In fact, I'm going to show you a picture later on of a general in Russia. And I wondered why in Russia do they all come back? I thought, man, these Russians are thirsty to hear something spiritual, you know? And then the translator said, no, that's not it, sir. Uh, What's really going on is General Medikoff, when you get through saying it's optional, he stands up and you probably don't know what he's saying because he says in Russian, but he says, it is not optional, you will all come back. (laughs) Then he says, you don't have to believe what he says, but you must listen. And so I approached General Medikoff and I said, General, we'd like it to be optional. He says, no, you don't understand. We've been 30, 40 years without God. Look what it's done to our country. They must listen. Isn't that cool? Wish that would happen in this country. (laughs) Okay, so let's go through the three reactions that most people have when they feel that they've been called to share the gospel of Jesus. It's a story of Moses from Exodus 3. God tells him he wants him to represent him. And what's the first reaction that Moses has? Who? Me? Why me? I can't do this. Who am I? Are the exact words he uses. Guess what? That's the right attitude. But it's not a valid excuse. God's effective leaders have had this attitude. David said, Who am I, O Lord, that thou hast brought me thus far? Solomon said something even more profound. He said, I do not know how to go out or come back in. In other words, I can't even find my way home, Lord. You want me to represent you? The main point is our adequacy is in the Lord. 2 Corinthians 3, 5 says, not that we are adequate in ourselves. Our adequacy is in God. One morning it was rainy. It was cold. It was one o'clock. I just completed a watch. I was on my way home at that time. We lived in Pasadena. I got on a Pasadena freeway, turned on the radio to kind of cheer myself up a little bit and hear some music or something. And I heard, sig alert, Pasadena freeway. Entire freeway is shut down. Use alternate routes. (laughs) And I figured I got to go service streets to get home because there were no other freeways at that time to Pasadena. In fact, there still aren't. And so I got on the surface streets and started home and I got into Pasadena and I was going down a side street and all of a sudden ahead of me I saw a pickup truck right next to a brand new Cadillac and they had a Cadillac on milk crates and they were stripping it. It was a stolen car. One o'clock in the morning. I'm by myself. I'm in a little compact car. A Renault Dolphin. Anybody remember those? They're a little tiny thing. And and, and I thought, well, I'm out of the city. I, it's not really my responsibility here, but I am a cop. I, I probably have some responsibility here, so maybe I ought to write down at least the, the license number of the truck. So I, I pulled up behind him and I flipped on my high beams and I started writing on the console the license number and I wasn't looking up and I didn't realize they figured out what I was doing and all three of them came running toward me. And I didn't realize they were there until one guy was gonna pull me out of the car. And as he reached for the, the door... I, I kicked the door into him to give me some room to get out. And right on my seat alongside of me, I had my 357 Magnum. And I brought that with me. And these guys are all, they've all got these big wrenches and tire irons and stuff. 
And, and they looked, and I, and I said, what are you guys going to do with those wrenches? And clink, 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 they all suddenly dropped to the ground. And the guy said, now take it easy. Now take it easy, man. D- don't shoot. And I said, throw your wallets down. You're going to rob us? <laughs> I said, no, I'm a cop. I want your IDs. Throw your wallets down. So they threw their wallets down. And guess what? A couple of them had ID in the wallet. Yeah, the other guys didn't. But, but anyhow, I got the two IDs, and, and I threw the wallets back. And I said, you can sit on the curb now. They sat on the curb. And I said, look, uh, this car is too small. There's only one of me. There's three or four of you guys. I forget whether there were three or four, but there was more than two. And uh, I said, you know, there's, there's too many for me to do anything with. So I'm taking off. I'm going to go get the passenger the cops. If you guys are smart, since we know who you are, you'll just sit down right there on the curb and wait for them. I didn't think they would, so I, I drove off. I walked into the Pasadena station. I could smell some good old coffee brewing. I needed it, you know, and I said to the sergeant, I said, after I make my report, I'd like a cup of that coffee. He said, oh, yeah, you can have it. Uh, and so I gave him my ID, and he looked at it, and I, I told him what happened. And I got about halfway through, and he said, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Hey, Lee, belay that armed robbery call. That wasn't a robber. That was a cop. Apparently, a taxi driver had seen me with my gun out, <laughs> making her throw down their wallets figured I was robbing them and called for the police. (laughs) Guess what? Five minutes later on the radio, the cops got there. These guys are sitting on the curb waiting for us. (laughs) They were there. They took them into custody. Well, my point for that story is not just to entertain you, not just a funny cop story. My adequacy was not in myself that morning. I realized I can't take these guys in. They'll overwhelm me. I also realized I need a little help here. And I got my 357 Magnum. That made all the difference in the world. That's an equalizer. <laughs> you know what? God is more powerful than a 357 Magnum. And he said, I want you to represent me. And I'm going to make you adequate to do that. I'll take care of that. Because that's what God told Moses. Moses said, Who, me? God said, Yeah, you. You may be inadequate. I'll make adequate. I'll take care of things. Guess what? His second excuse was, yeah, but what'll I say? Okay, I'll go. But God, I'm not sure I'll know what to say. Have you ever felt that way? What if somebody asks you, you're riding on an airplane and the person sitting next to you, some way finds out that you're a believer and says, why do you believe and how do you become a practicing Christian? How does that happen? What do I need to do? What would you tell him? That's what Moses was saying. God's effective servants also had this fear. Isaiah said, I'm a man of unclean lips. Jeremiah said, I do not know how to speak. God's answer, I will put words in your mouth. That's literally what he said. And Jeremiah said, I have put words in your mouth. And you know what Jesus said? He said, the Holy Spirit is going to bring to your remembrance what I have told you. Now, the key word there in that verse is remembrance. You can't remember something that's not already there. You know what that implies? You prepare and God will lead. God will bring to your remembrance the things that you have prepared for. So it's not that you should just say, oh, God's going to tell me what to say. I don't need to do anything. Yes, you do. You need to prepare. You need to think through. What should I say to someone if I ever get an opportunity to share my faith in Christ? 
What are the things? You know, I'd get a Bible study and go through it. Ask one of the pastors here, what do I need to read in order to prepare a little outline of the things I should cover if I get asked? And prepare and get the verses. There's power in quoting the verses from the word of God. And then guess what? He will bring to your remembrance. In the 70s, I was a captain of the Venice Precinct. Venice is the place where every weirdo in the world ends up eventually. <laughs> that was a real fun assignment, being captain of Venice. I had about 400 officers under me at the time, and, and, and Oceanfront Walk, Arnold Schwarzenegger used to work out there. and It was kind of a fun place in many ways, but it was also very weird. And I had some real problems as a commanding officer. And One night I had a community meeting where the community was disturbed about some things some of my officers had done, and I needed to talk to them. And so I was going to stay over for an 8 o'clock meeting in the, in the community, and it was too far to go all the way to Pasadena to come back. So I called my boss that lived in Sepulveda Pass, which isn't too far from Venice, and I said, hey, boss. His name was Tom Janes, J-A-N-E-S. I said, hey, boss, uh, can I come over and talk to you about I got a couple uh, items to talk over. I have to be back in the precinct tonight at 8 o'clock. Uh, maybe I can have a little something to eat with you, Helen. Now, you know, I don't know why I said that because you never do that in LAPD. You don't ask your boss if he'd come over for dinner. <laughs> LAPD is like the army, you know, and this guy, one star, he's like a general. And there's no way that you just call a general and say, can I come over for dinner tonight, you know? He put his hand over the phone and I could hear him talking to his wife and he came back and he said, yeah, we're having spaghetti tonight. She'll put in a few more noodles. Come on over. Hung up the phone, you know? So I went over. And I had exposed Tom. He had asked me some questions. He knew I was a believer. And he had asked me previously questions. I I had actually taken him to Hume Lake at a conference. And he heard the gospel preached. Never indicated he responded or anything. So I assumed he hadn't. In fact, I had asked him. And he said, no, I haven't got to that point yet. And so that night, I don't know what got into me. I was weird that night. First of all, I invited myself for dinner. And then as we're talking over a Caesar salad... I looked across the table. His wife went out to get some spaghetti. And I said, hey, boss, is it about time you became a believer and accepted Christ as your Savior? I actually said that to my boss. And he looked at me and he said, yeah. I didn't think he would say that. So I was, what do I say now? So I remember just praying, God, tell me what to say. I won't know what to say. Well, guess what? I had prepared. I had a whole bunch of verses and everything. And to be honest with you, I cannot remember which ones I called upon that night. But it must have been right because about five or ten minutes later, Tom was praying a prayer I'll never forget. It's a kind of prayer where someone who doesn't pray, it prays for maybe the first time. It was kind of like this. God, this is Tom Jane speaking, sir. He figured God won't know who it is. I've never been here before. And then he said very simply, I'd like you to be in my life. I need you. I'm a sinner. Please come and help me. It was that simple. It was about that long too. Very brief. We prayed over the arriving spaghetti. And Tom lived just two more years. He had a heart attack a couple years later. He died unexpectedly. But in those intervening two years, He started a Bible study at my house and he would invite captains and above to come over. And many captains and commanders and 
deputy chiefs on LAPD heard the gospel because of Tom Jaynes. What will you say? You prepare. God will tell you what to say. The final reaction that Moses has is the fear of failure. He says, what if they don't believe? What if I do all that you've told me? I I say some things and what, what if they say, well, I don't believe that? Well, guess what? Our job is limited. We are charged to clearly speak the gospel, speak the truth, share our faith. It said we shall be witnesses. It's God's role to draw people. That's not our role. The main point is we go, we share our faith, whether it's one-on-one or before a group or a small group or whatever, or over the neighborhood fence. It's God's job to convince them one way or the other. You don't have to worry about that. That's out of your job description. That's not your role. We have to have a little role clarification here. I'd like to tell you a story about how I had to clarify my role as a police officer. I'm working a juvenile unit, plain clothes car, over in Hollenbeck. We were plagued with a bunch of stolen cars and the drop spot was Evergreen Playground. A lot of the cars that appear there, so we figured out it's kids stealing these cars and they're joyriding and they drop them off at the playground when they come to shoot baskets or whatever. So we went and staked out. It was a Friday night. And somewhere after dark, you know, a car came down the street, pulled right next to the basketball courts and a guy rolls down the window and he points at the car that he's driving. There's a couple guys with him in there. There's three guys in the car. And he says, hey, you guys, GTA. He's telling his friends that are playing basketball. That means Grand Theft Auto. My partner and I look at one another. Thank you. <laughs> we want to kind of know that, you know. So we threw our coffee out the window and threw our cups in the backseat of the car and gradually pulled behind him and followed him down the street a couple blocks till they hit a signal, pulled up next to him at the signal. I'm the passenger officer. We're on their left there, on the right there. And I have my badge in his hand. I have my flashlight in his hand. I said, hey, you guys, we're police officers. We'd like to talk to you. Just pull the car over there. Wow, pedal to the middle, right through the red light, off we go. In pursuit. 4J9, we're in pursuit. Going eastbound on 4th Street toward East LA, alert East LA sheriffs. Suddenly we're in a pursuit. They're broadcasting over the radio and it's kind of exciting and, and uh, the operator gets a little overexcited and she got something wrong because there came a point when I just said to Bill Lynch, my partner, I said, Bill, they're going to, they're going to crash. They're, they're driving over their heads. Watch out. And we're in the hills of East L.A., City Terrace. And, and they pull around one corner, and there's a big old telephone pole. They hit the telephone pole and went over the cliff, about a 200-foot cliff. I thought, man, those kids are toast. That's it. And I said, 4J9 requesting ambulance, uh, fire department, uh, heavy towing. The car we were chasing just went over a 200-foot cliff. She was so excited, she misinterpreted me and she, she said to all the other units, all units on all frequencies, stand by, Fort J9 just went over a 200-foot cliff. I guess she thought I was broadcasting on the way down. Send for the ambulance. <laughs> I'll never forget that. Stopped the car, got out, walked over to the side of the hill, looked down there, there's the car. Not more than 10 feet from me. It had got somehow entangled with the cable guy wire that held up the pole and although the pole was broken it was still partially holding this car now it wasn't a sheer cliff it was kind of like that so the car was balanced laying there and it was kind of wobbling back and forth being supported by this cable 
we knew they were in serious trouble. And guess what? At that point, I had a role clarification. My role was no longer arrest these kids. They're bad guys. Your role is to arrest them. You know what my role became? Save their lives. These are three kids that are going to die if you don't do something. My partner got a hose from across the street, a garden hose, and with that garden hose, over the next 20 minutes or so, we ended up getting all three of those kids out of that car safely before it went down the side. Our role had changed. We didn't worry about putting handcuffs on them right away. We were worried about them running away. They didn't, by the way. They were so scared, they just stayed there. (laughs) We got them to the hospital because one of them had a little bit of head injury we had to take care of. But other than that, it was an amazing thing. But it clarified something for me. Role clarification. Know what your role is. Guess what? Your role in taking out the gospel is not to convince people. That's God's. Your role is to share it. And what is more important than getting people connected with the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ? One night I got a call. It was late. Picked up the phone. Been a shooting One of your men had been shot in the chest. Doesn't sound good. He's being removed to the California hospital. Thought you'd want to know. I jumped in the car, got to the California hospital, walked in. The guy that they told me over the radio as I was driving in was shot. His first name was Jim. I knew him. I walked in the treatment room, the emergency room, and he's sitting on the emergency. He's sitting up and he's smiling. Hi, chief. Thanks for coming. I said, Jim, they told me you were shot in the chest. Well, I kind of was. And then a young officer that I didn't know was standing alongside me. He said, let me tell. He's like a little kid. He had to tell, you know. He said, we, we, had, we got this call. Uh, Jim went on the north side of the hotel. I was on the south side of the hotel. We got to the alley, and there were the bad guys were in the alley, and they started shooting at Jim. They didn't see me. And they hit him right there, sir, right through his tie, right in the tin ring. He said, I went over after I took a couple shots at them, and they jumped over the wall, and I called for the helicopter and all that and the ambulance, and, and I went over to Jim, and, and I looked, and, and, and he said, here, take these messages for my wife. He said, I got out my officer's notebook and started taking messages, and he said, then suddenly I noticed there's no blood coming out of the hole in his tie. He said, I pulled out his shirt, and there's his ballistic vest, bulletproof vest, and there's the bullet. I could see it with my mag light embedded in the, in the vest. And he said, hey, Jim, you got your vest on, man. He said, suddenly Jim got well. And he said, he said that's right, I've got my vest on. <laughs> now, to be fair to Jim, even though he had a vest on, getting shot with a bullet caused a lot of damage, caused a lot of ache, caused a lot of pain. He had to remain in a hospital for three days. You know what? Two weeks to the very day after that incident, another one of my men was shot in the very same place, and he was dead within 30 or 40 seconds. You know why? He was not wearing his vest. He believed in the vest, but he wasn't wearing it. I like to give that story as an illustration of what you have to do as far as your relationship with God in order to truly have him in your life. It's more than belief. It's a trusting relationship just like the vest is a relationship. Have you ever put on the vest of Jesus? That's an important thing. We have a few slides that I'd like to show you real quickly about what we've been doing in Point Man all over the world. It's a ministry to leaders. As I said earlier, 72 countries. But let's look at just some of them. The first country 
Here we go. There we are, Russia. There's General Medikoff. There's Esther. That, that was 20 years ago. That's me, believe it or not. But that was 20 years ago when we first got started with this. And that's General Medikoff. He's the guy that said, no, it's not an option. You will come back in the room. The next picture is the Mongolian parliament. We got to present the gospel to the Mongolian parliament as an option. And not all of them in Mongolia stayed. In Russia they do, but in Mongolia, a lot of them didn't come back in. But most of them did. They heard the gospel after two days of seminars on leadership. That's all the leaders of the gulags in Siberia. Interesting group of guys. That is not Santa Claus on the left. That's the head of the Eastern Orthodox Church in Ukraine. And that's a general over the academy, the police academy in Ukraine. And once again, that's me standing on the right, a lot younger and better use of my legs in those days. You know what? That general actually wept when it came time for us to leave. He was so enthused about the good news that he had heard. Here's a bunch of command officers in Africa. And this is a typical group in China. We've been to China four times. This is South America. And this is a shot in America where we do the seminars at churches and various other organizations. Here's some statistics that you may see. Uh, A lot of people have heard. This is just the first year. And since the first year, you can see how many people, a lot of people have heard. Not only principles of leadership, but the gospel. Let me summarize. Your job is to take the message out to your neighbors, to your friends. You're to prepare But God will help you remember and God will help you choose exactly what to say. And your job is not to convince. It's merely to present as accurately as you can. God be with you as you do. Can we pray in closing? As the worship team comes up, let's pray. Father, thank you for the insight you give us about exactly what our role is and what it's not and how we are to follow you. Lord, give us the courage to do so. In Jesus' name, amen. I'll be down in front to talk with you, any of you after we sing and, and have a closing benediction. Let's thank Bob Byrne and everybody. Come on.